Uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. They'll get it to you. And we're going to be in James chapter 2. We're going uh, through the book of James, the epistle of James. Lawrence, we'll get you one. I know you're way in the back. You've been neglected. <clears throat> you can share your wife's Bible. She brought hers. <laughs> Just I'll let get that one where it needed to go. <laughs> if he wasn't such a good friend, I wouldn't pick on him. So that's a lot of you guys, well, I ain't going to be your friend then. He who desires friends must himself first be friendly. Um, well, we're going to be taking a look at James chapter 2. And so what we do is we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord and we sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. So James chapter 2. We're going to pick up at verse 14 and we're going to finish the chapter this morning. <clears throat> James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace and be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? But someone will say, yo, you have faith. You have the gift of faith, pastor, but I have the gift of works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. How many people believe there's one God? Raise your hand. Guess what? You guys, look at the next portion. It says, even the demons believe and tremble. That doesn't get you into heaven just because you believe there's one God. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Hmm. But let me read this to you. Faith without works is dead. Let me read this to you, and then we'll, have you, we'll pray and we'll sit down. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. The Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. And then James is saying, well, faith without works is dead. Paul's saying, well, you've been saved by grace, through faith. That is a gift of God, not of works. So let's pray and see what God has to say. Lord, your word doesn't contradict itself. It emphasizes itself. And it brings clarity. There's no greater illustration for the word of God than the word of God itself. And so, Lord, as we open this passage of Scripture that some during the Reformation said was the epistle of straw. Martin Luther said that. He struggled with this passage because it was so revolutionary to be set free from the works of the law under righteousness because the law doesn't save. And that burden to carry it is just so overwhelming. And then yet, Lord, we even have the ability to take something like salvation by grace and then move the pendulum all the way to the other side and say, well, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card. I don't have to operate in the context of God's law anymore. It's all grace, brother. Oh, Lord, there's a balance in all that we do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us insight. You would exhort where exhortation is needed. You'd comfort where comfort is needed. And you'd speak to every heart in accordance with your word. And so, Holy Spirit, take over, please, Lord, and, and minister to every need that I am completely unaware of. And Lord, speak to every heart in a way that each heart would listen and receive, that no man has the ability to do, but you do, Lord. And as always, we'll give you the glory, for we know that salvation is a miracle of you, God. And as we prepare to take communion this morning, Lord, that, that was secured by your works upon that cross. And so, Lord, we rejoice that you were faithful to follow the Father's plan. You had faith that it would work, but you also worked out by faith that plan. And so, Lord, we rejoice that we have that salvation secured in our lives. Bless us, God. Challenge us, we pray, and we'll give you the glory, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, have a seat.
You know, when, when uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which we studied a ways back, we went through the entire uh, epistle to the Ephesians, and the Apostle Paul, you know, James is writing the book of James. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience. This is a Jewish audience that, uh, that you know, they always perceived uh, their works as bringing righteousness in a sense, and they tried to observe the law under righteousness. And, and Paul would go on to refute that in Romans 4, and he, he, would, he would go on to say that, that Abraham was justified by faith. Long before the law was ever given, he was justified by faith. The law hadn't even been given yet. And you find that in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. It didn't say that he did this and he earned the righteousness. It says he believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And that was long before the Mosaic law or the Levitical law came into being. Uh, Abraham was made righteous by believing God, period. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God, and then Paul would go on to write not only Romans 4, which you can read in its entirety, but he would go on to write in Ephesians, uh, he would say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You don't save yourself, you can't save yourself. Uh, The Apostle Paul would say, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. And, and I've heard the comment that, you know, we'll never be sinless, we'll just sin less. We, that's not even true. I don't even buy that anymore. Some of you are going, well, you used to preach it. I did. I don't buy it anymore. Just throw it out. Edit the tapes. <laughs> and here's why I see it this way. We don't, we, don't, we, don't sin, we, we don't become sinless and we don't sin less. Otherwise, why would the Apostle Paul begin his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner, and end his ministry in 2 Timothy and say, I'm the chief of sinners? If he's sinning less, why would he be the chief of sinners? We don't sin less. The minute we get our hands on anything in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. The minute we get our hands on anything, we screw it up. We are wretched, selfish, self-consumed sinners. I, of my own self, can do nothing, Jesus said. I, apart from the Father, can, can accomplish nothing, Jesus said. I and my Father are one. So, I don't sin less. The only thing I can do, the only thing I can do, I, everyone say I. Everyone say me. I, me, mine. Good. Ego. Self-preservation. Don't keep repeating me. Ego, self-preservation. I, me, mine. The only thing I can do is not sin less. The only thing I can do, according to Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me to will and to do of his good pleasure. The only thing I can do is die. (laughs) He's so gifted. But Romans 12 says we're living sacrifices. Offer ourselves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing. It's your spiritual sacrifice to God. The only thing we can do is die. But we're living sacrifices. We roll off the altar and we try to get matters into our own hands again. Then we screw it up and we sin. We don't sin less. We sin as we always sin. Whenever we're in the picture, we're sinning. The Bible says no flesh will be glorified in the presence of God. You, you and I don't accomplish squat. When we die, God does through us. What does that mean? Well, that means that you've been saved by faith. Through, you've been saved by grace through faith. That is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. God does the work. Salvation is a miracle of the Lord. Where's your role in it? Well, the passage says, you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith. James says that faith without works is dead. And you think, well, does, that, does Paul contradict James? No, because Paul goes on to say in verse 10 of chapter 2, listen to this. For we are his poema, his workmanship, poetry. We are his poema in the Greek. We are his workmanship. You know, like a, a master craft, craftsman or a painter or, or whatever is formulating this workmanship, this masterpiece. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, listen, for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You've been saved to serve. You tell me you're saved and you're not doing anything. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Week in and week out, who rules your life? 
Who's in charge of your life? The Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. You go, what are you, a fruit inspector? Not fruit unto condemnation, fruit unto identification. What are your good works? What is your saving faith? Where is this, this picture of who you are in Christ? James isn't contradicting salvation by grace. But antinomialism, the idea is, it's not that you swing the pendulum all the way to the other side. Well, hey, brother, we're not under the law anymore, bro. We're not under the law, bro. Don't, don't judge me. I can judge you under identification. The scripture gives us the ability. You can judge me under identification, not under condemnation. But I can look at you and say, well, you know, hey, I'm an apple tree. I'm looking at you going, I don't see no apples. I don't even see apple blossoms. I don't even see apple leaves. I don't even see an apple root. But I, oh, I'm an apple tree. The Bible says you'll know them by their... What are the fruits? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. So we, we, can, we can judge under identification, but not under condemnation. I can't say that you're saved, you're not saved. I don't, I don't know the extent of it. But I look at you, and if you've been sitting in the church your whole life, and nothing's changed. If you're being put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? I mean, you, you know, it's, that's the idea. The Bible says that, you're, that, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. I would just ask you this. Where are you serving? What's your pocketbook look like? If I were to look at your checkbook, where, where does your money go? I mean, if we were just to examine fruit, who's the last person you shared Christ with? Who did you serve? The Bible says that we've been created unto good works, prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Titus says, and it says in Titus 3.8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. So I'm doing it. I'm obeying. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. We're supposed to be doing stuff, good stuff, working. But we don't. We tend to neglect the things of the Lord. And what happens here is James says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So you can quote scriptures. So what? So what? So you know Christianese and you're moved by sermons. Great. But how does it, how does it manifest your, itself in your life? And when I'm saying that, I, and I'm asking those questions, please understand, I'm sitting in your seat listening to myself talk. I'm not speaking to somebody who's accomplished it. I got to tell you, those, those questions that I'm posing before you convict my heart deeply. There's no, probably nobody in the room more convicted than myself. I, I do not feel as I've done enough. I could never, I could spend my lifetime and never do enough. We all struggle with that. I'm not here to bring condemnation. The idea is, Lord, I want to do better. Lord, examine me. See if there be any wicked way in me. I want to give it all to you. I want to be wholly yours. I want to die that you might live. And this is the challenge of the Christian life. And so when, when James points this out and he says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 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 As the spirit is, is it, when, it, when it says it, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I've been at the, de- the bedside of those who have stepped into eternity. I've watched them have that death gurgle and breathe their last. And their spirit leaves their body. And you can see a distinct change. It's just a shell. Even when there's a little bit of life remaining, there's something there. And then when that spirit departs, you can just tell, where did they go? That's not them. It's like the chicken is hatched and the egg is, the shell is remaining. That's just not them. That was by my mother's bedside when she passed. And I, that, that's not my mom. I mean, there's similarities that I've noticed all this time, but that's not her. She's gone. And as, and as the spirit, uh, as it says, the body without the spirit is dead. I've seen it. The spirit, the, the body without the spirit, 
They're dead. They're not there anymore. The well, Bible says, so faith without works is dead also. Ooh, that's frightening. Death is frightening. So is dead faith. Oh, pastor, I believe in God. I, 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 you asked me, I believe in God. So do the demons. They believe in God and they tremble. But they don't act upon it. They don't do anything. There isn't an active faith. What do you mean by an active faith? What is this you're speaking of? Well, I don't have to cover it. James does. Look at verse 18. It says, but someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. And James says, well, wait a minute. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You can't have one without the other. They coincide together. He said, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Remember, we covered that. You believe that there's one God, you do well. You believe that there's one God, you do well. I mean, we're, we're at least at a place where we're in agreement that there's one God. Cool. That's a good thing because there's a lot of people in the world that are into God. You can get to that place where you can mentally ascend to this understanding that there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I mean, Jesus was in their presence. Do you remember the, the demon-possessed man at the, in the Gadarenes? And they got off the boat as they came across Galilee through the storm, and the guys get off the boat, and the disciples are so excited to be on terra firma, firm ground. They're like, oh, this is so good, you know, because the storm was raging, and they thought they were all going to die, and they're all screaming like little girls. And they finally get on the firm ground on the other side of Galilee, and they're just kissing the ground. And out of nowhere comes this guy who was in chains living in the tombs, and he comes out, and he's just possessed. And he's broken the chains, so it's like PCP guy. He's like, and, and, and he's broken the chains, and he's buck naked running up to him. He's screaming, and they're just, and then, and then Jesus is there, and the demon-possessed man, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You can imagine the disciples going, and then they, they, they say their name. What is your name? And the demon-possessed man says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And they, they plead with Jesus, knowing that he has power. And, and they're saying, please, you know, cast us into the swine. They know they're in trouble. They know he has power. They know he's the son of God. Even Satan knew he was the son of God. In the temptation in John chapter 4, when he's in the wilderness, not 4, in, in the temptation in the wilderness, it, 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 Satan says to Jesus, in a sense, in the, in the original Greek, the question isn't, uh, if you're the Son of God, the, the question is totally different. It's, since you are the Son of God, turn these, breads into, uh, tur- turn these stones into bread. What he's saying is, you and I both know you're God. We know you're the Son, but the Father's neglected you. Now take matters into your own hands. Jesus said, I, I of my own self can do nothing. I and my Father are one. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what Satan was saying is, you and I both know that you're the Son of God. We both know that you're the Messiah. But you're dying and the Father's forsaken you. What he's trying to do is the same thing he did to Eve and, uh, and, and Adam, is to doubt God's word. That's, that's the only thing he has. He does a lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, limited to, uh, you know, temptations that Satan employs, but he seems to sucker us. We're like fish. We fall for a worm every time. It's in the shape of a J. And we just fall for the same worm every time. Oh, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. Oh. And then he just reels us in, skins us alive. We're done. And this picture is even the demons believe and tremble. Mm. Satan departed from Jesus for a more opportune time. Satan knows his time's up. He's going to be thrown into the abyss by one angel. We don't even know the angel's name. So don't think that Satan is God's equal in evil. He's not. He's thrown into a pit by one angel. We don't even know the angel's name. It's probably Norman. <laughs> it's over. Satan is not God's equal in evil. It's not like God's going, I've got to wrestle with him. He's a creature. He's a created being. If God is to remove sin and evil he needs to remove sinners and that's you and me but he allows sin to exist so that sinners can come to repentance and repentance is change works 
evidence. Communities transformed by people's lives being made manifest with the presence of God as we die and He lives. Jesus changes the world. So do His followers. So do His disciples. It's not enough to believe that there's one God. It's not enough to, to sit in a Bible study and go, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, that is a very insightful passage, Pastor. I'm moved by it. And the story's about patriotism. My heart soars. Yes. And the way that it's tied together, there's like humor, so I'm not bored or anything. This is in, actually, your humor's a little over the top, and it does irritate me at times. And your voice, when you do that, makes me sound like myself, but I never mind. And you just go on. You're not saved. What is the evidence? I've got my get out of hell free card. Okay? I said that prayer and I raised my hand. I didn't want it, but I, I, I just put it up there. Okay? Good. That's a good start. Praise the Lord. It's a good start. By grace, you've been saved. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Good. It's a good start. Let's grow up a little bit. Where's the works? Where's the works? And you say, what, what do you mean by works? Where are we going with this? James points it out. He says, he says this. He says, uh, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe in tremble. But look at verse 20. But do you, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And look what he says. He uses a cool example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Uh, let me tell you the story. What, what James is referring to is Genesis chapter 22. But he also gives an illustration out of, out of Genesis 15 when he uses the term, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, in Genesis 15... Um, Abraham had left Ur of Chaldees and he'd gone as far as Haran and, and the Lord had told him to leave his, his family and his, his possessions, his kindred, all that. He still travels with his father. He still travels with Lot. They get as far as Haran. His father dies. They end up in Canaan, go down to Egypt. Uh, he, he struggles through that whole process. He's anything but a man of faith. He lies to Pharaoh. He, he tells Sarah to tell Pharaoh that he's his sister, which was a half lie, or a half truth, which is a whole lie. Sarah's being obedient the whole time, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you, you know. And so as he's walking through this process, here's what happens. He finally gets just so convoluted and messed up in this, this pursuit of the Lord that he's just saying, you know, God, how will I know that my descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea? How will I know? Uh, and, and, and he goes into a deep sleep. And what he did is he cut a covenant and, and, and he was waiting for the Lord to come and cut this covenant and waiting for God to show up. And, and cutting a covenant means you take these two pieces of the animal and you cut it in half and you have two pieces and the blood of each end of the animal pours into the middle. And, and to cut a covenant in the Middle East, you hold somebody's hand, the person you want to go into business with, you hold their hand and you walk through the blood. And you just see the flies and the maggots and everything on the sides of the animals. And you see the blood and the carcass and the misery. And you walk through it with that business partner. And what you're saying to each other is, if I mess with you, may this happen to me. And the other person's going, if I mess with you, may this happen to me. If I break my promise with you, may I end up like this. And if I break my promise with you, may I end up like this. Cutting a covenant. And God said, I want to cut a covenant with you. So Abraham cuts the animals. He's waiting for the Lord. The Lord doesn't show up. Abraham falls asleep. And then a fire pot passes through the pieces. And what God was saying is, I don't need you to keep my promise. I'll do it in spite of you. He knew Abraham was going to fail. And what's amazing is Abraham finally came to that understanding. And in verse chapter uh, 15 of Genesis, it says that Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. So right now, we're going to resolve this question of whether or not you're saved. You're going to get right with God. He's going to pass through the pieces for you right now. Here's how it works. You believe God and his righteousness will be put on your account. You'll be made right with God. Your sins will be cast away. You'll be made right with God. You'll stand before the presence of the Lord when you die, and you're going to be fine. And here's how it works. You believe in your heart. Confess with your tongue, Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be saved to the glory of the Father. Jesus Christ's righteousness will be put on your account. It'll be imputed to you. You'll go to the ATM, and you have a billion dollars now. Kind of. 
You have far more than that. But you have to believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. Now, here's the thing. I can hear the confession with your tongue. I can hear that. It's your heart that you're responsible for. And your heart will reflect itself in works. You won't do good works to be saved. You will do work, good works because you are saved. It's two sides of the same coin. Heads. Tails, same coin. You're saved by grace through faith. And that manifests itself by good works. You're not saved by works, but you do good works because you are saved. You see that coin? Isn't that an amazing coin? You don't see it, but you're like moving with me as I'm doing this. You see that? You see how I can pull my finger off my hand? See that? And Abraham, interestingly enough, Abraham didn't manifest these good works until chapter 22. He believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, but he didn't start manifesting it until Genesis 22. Genesis 22, which is that? It's where he goes through this whole rigmarole wanting to have a descendant because God said your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He realizes that Sarah's in her 90s. He's approaching 100. They haven't had any kids. So Sarah says, well, why don't you sleep with Hagar, our Egyptian handmaid, and you can have a child through her, which was acceptable in the Middle East. But that's not what God said. He said, from you will come a descendant. And he's thinking, well, I can't find, you know, an obstetrician or gynecologist in all of the Middle East that's going to say Sarah can have a baby. That woman is older. And, and Abraham's thinking, I, I don't think I have that ability. So that's, we're both not there anymore. And we're not going to have a child. And then Sarah says, why don't you sleep with the young handmaid? And actually the handmaid, Hagar, when you look at it in its entirety, she would be like an, uh, an au pair. Um, and, and what would happen is these great kingdoms in Europe, uh, they would have children and they would be of the aristocracy, the, the aristocracy, and they would send their child to another country to care for the children and learn how to be a parent in an aristocratic home. And so it was nobility, transferring nobility, and they saw in Abraham. So Hagar was probably a princess from Egypt, and she was beautiful and young, and, and, and she's, she's learning these ways of a wealthy man and a wealthy woman in their home. And, and Sarah turns to, to Abraham and says, it's, it's God's withheld children from my womb, so you might as well go sleep with Hagar. And, you know, Abram's like, well, that sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> and we've covered this before. We've covered this before. Women say one thing and mean something else. We have. Ladies, when Sarah said, God has withheld children Go and sleep with Hagar. What was she really saying? Tell me you love me and it's going to be all right. Is there a woman in this room that wants her husband to go sleep with another woman? Well, neither did Sarah. Sarah was saying, you know, as the Bible says, husbands, bathe your wife in the water of the word. Assure her. Tell her you love her. Tell her it's going to be all right. Remind her of God's promises. Hold firm. You're the priest of the home. You don't, you're, not a, you're not a thermometer. You're a thermostat. You don't read the temperature of the room. You set it. You're the, you're the priest of the home. Set the spiritual temperature. Remind her of, his, of God's promises. Stand true to those. And just like the Apostle Paul in the shipwreck in Acts, at the end of Acts, where everyone's panicking. They've given up all hope of living. And here's this little tiny rabbi. And he comes up to the, the centurion and also the ship's captain. He says, take heart. I'm telling you, take heart. I've seen an angel of the Lord. We're all going to be okay, but the ship's going to tear apart, but we'll all get to the shore safely. Praise God. The centurion says, I'm, I'm believing Paul. He could see it in his eyes. Change the whole spiritual temperature of the ship. Husbands, that's what we do. Well, that's not what Abraham did. Oh, yes, in chapter 15, he believed God was accredited to him as righteousness, but now he has a chance to work out his faith and to reassure his wife of the word of God. He doesn't. What happens? He goes, oh, Hagar, yeah, oh, wee. And then he goes. Hagar gets pregnant. 
She comes out rubbing her belly. <laughs> Looking over at Sarah. Sarah looks at her and Hagar's looking at her going, I have your husband's baby. Sarah's like, and you know how women, you, you are good at this. You get a group of women and you just have that way of looking at each other. You just, I can't believe she looked at me that way. What, honey? I didn't see any. Oh, you just don't see it. <laughs> did, you, did you see what she did with her eyes? No, I didn't. It's volumes like a dictionary it's an encyclopedia a through z it was awful hmm and that's what hagar was doing to sarah just giving her the look as women can give to other women tear them apart and you know what sarah does she turns to abraham she goes this sin be upon you sarah points to abraham this is your fault. Husbands are like, wait a minute. How is this my fault? You told me to sleep with her. That's what I said, but it's not what I meant. I don't understand you. That's why the Bible says husbands dwell with your wives with understanding. Because you can't. This is awesome. It's the best. Does this dress... Uh, never mind. <laughs> Just dwell with them with understanding. They want to be loved and assured of your love and the promises of God. Protect the home. Encourage them. Tell them you love them. Abraham, you know, Sarah goes, this is your fault. And Abraham at this point realizes I've blown it. He goes and gets right with God. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Sarah gets pregnant. And Isaac is born. First you had, you had Ishmael who was born. That was born from Hagar. And then all of a sudden Isaac's born. Ishmael's older. Isaac's younger. And now we get to Genesis 22. And this is what, Paul, or this is what James is talking about. Genesis 22. This is what James is talking about. This is where his works manifest themselves. Check it out. Genesis 22. Back in Genesis 15, he was saved by faith. And it was accredited to him as righteousness. He saved but here's how it manifests itself in Genesis 22. Here's what happens. Watch. God says to Abraham in Genesis 22, take now your son, your only son. He doesn't even recognize Ishmael. He says, take the boy of the promise, the one with whom every promise I've given you is going to come to fruition. That your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. And all the promises that I've given to you, Abraham, all the promises rest on that little boy. And I want you now to sacrifice him. What? What? Sacrifice my boy, all the promises on him? That doesn't make sense. What is God's foolishness? Divine wisdom demanding faith. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. What is God's foolishness? It's divine wisdom demanding faith. God is saying, trust me. Let me see if you're going to follow my wisdom and you're going to trust me by faith. But God, this doesn't make any sense. Why would I give a tenth of my income away? Because I told you to. But it doesn't make sense. That doesn't matter. Give me your firstborn. Give me your son. Jesus was God's tithe to man. We look at this and he says, take now your son, your only son. And this is where his works manifest themselves by faith. He takes God at his word. It doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to do it. He walks up and he says to his servants, stay here. The lad and I are going to go forth to sacrifice and we will come back. I'm going to sacrifice my son, but we're both coming back. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God, this is going to be a trippy trip. You just stay put. We'll be back. And they go and they make the altar. And then Isaac says, Dad, we've got the altar built, but where's the sacrifice? <laughs> well, son, I just want to tell you something. It's been an interesting trip, and I, I was kind of withholding some things. I didn't think you'd join us if I told you. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to stab you. So come on up on the altar. 
And everyone thinks, oh, this little tiny boy Isaac, he's going to tie him to the altar and oh, try. No, he was an adult. He's probably in his 20s. His dad was in his hunt, almost 100. He was over 100. He could pummel his dad. Come here, I'll tie you up on that altar and then you thing and then. It'd be like Pastor Marty trying to hold back on me. You know, like, all right, just sit down. No. Hey, sit down. That's not Pastor Marty. I'm saying that's Abraham. But the idea, the idea is Isaac, Isaac could have whooped him. Isaac follows his father's faith. Okay, dad, I'm the son of the promise. I've been watching you trust the Lord. And as he brings a knife up, just as he's going to let it go, God knows his heart. That's all I want to see. And all of a sudden, the angel stops him. And over in the thicket is a ram, and they sacrifice the ram. God provided himself a sacrifice. That was the picture of Jesus. The Lord provided himself a sacrifice. But Abraham trusted God, and it manifested itself by works. Here's the point. Here's the point. God's foolishness is this, divine wisdom demanding faith. Faith manifests itself by works. Works is taking God at his word. Do it. Go get the job done. He goes on to use another example. You know, Abraham would be called the friend of God, and then likewise was not Rahab, verse 25, the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Everyone's going, see, that's justified because she lied, and then you can lie on certain again. That's not what the scripture's saying. She was justified by the fact that she put her life on the line to protect the, 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 the Jewish spies. Yeah, I believe that you have come to take over Jericho. I believe that you are conquering armies of God, but I am not going to house you or protect you or step out in faith to do that. It's not enough to believe. I believe this chair will hold me. I believe this chair will hold me. Now by works, I am proving that this chair holds me and I trust this chair. You can believe all you want in your mind until you do it. That is works. Jesus believed the Father's plan of redemption and he even said, Father, if there be any other way, but not my will, thy will be done. He believed that, that his death upon the cross would cover your sins and my sins, past, present, and future. And reconcile us to the Father, that his sacrifice on the cross would be sufficient for all the world's sins, but only efficient for those who would call upon the name of the Lord. He believed it. But if he had just stopped at believing it, there'd be nobody in this room. There'd be nobody in this room. Jesus could have had faith that the Father's plan would work. And he did. But by faith, he faithfully worked the Father's plan. Did you get that? He let them Jesus said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. He let them beat him. He let them spit upon him. He let them mock him. He let them make him carry his cross up the Via Dolorosa. He let them crucify him. He let them put the crown of thorns on his head. You don't do that to God. Nails don't. Hold God. He willingly did it by faith and he did it in works. And those works caused his body to be broken and his blood to be shed so that your sins and my sins could be wiped out. That's works. It worked all the way to the cross. And you don't come up here and take this bread and take that cup and testify to this name and not have works. You're dead. You're just eating a cracker and drinking a cup. It doesn't work. And finally, I would just say this to you. I, I like... 
I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, The grace that does not change my life. Listen. Please. The grace that will not change my life cannot save my soul. The grace that doesn't change my life can't save my soul. If, if you're not in a place where your life has been moved, and there's not good works. And what I was meaning by this last thing is a lot of you are paralyzed. And I don't know who you are. I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming because for the majority of my life, I, I sat in a seat and I felt the same way. I'm assuming you're like me. And you're paralyzed. You listen to the television and the news and everything else, and the world is just going to hell in a handbag. And you just want to cocoon yourself and not do one doggone thing. You've given up. I was so blessed this week by a sermon, and I, I, I can't even remember the last time I listened to a sermon on the radio. And I turned it on. I knew God wanted me to hear it, and I'm going to share it with you. And it was Andy Stanley. I don't even listen to the guy, and I was blown away. And he, he said this. He said, when you're, when, you, when you're growing up in life, we're conditioned by what our parents say to us. And, and we always get this. Mommy, can I have this? And her response is, well, if I give it to you, I have to give it to everyone else. Or your teacher says, I can't do that for you because if I do it for you, I'll have to do it for everyone else. Did you ever hear that growing up? That's a lie. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I get that in the church. Pastor, you can't do that for one member of the congregation and not do it for the rest. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. It's not fair. I'm sorry. Who made you the rule then? God's not a socialist. He isn't. Otherwise, there would be people in this church, there, there wouldn't be anyone in this church who makes more money than me. And there are a lot of them. If he was a socialist, we'd all have the same bank account. Why does God bless some and others he doesn't give monetary blessings to? Because and, and, he knows what he's doing. And he does give to some that he doesn't give to others. But it's not fair. Says who? Here's, here's, this is why it's a lie from Satan. Because we're, we're conditioned with this idea that if I give it to you, I'll have to give it to everyone. No, you don't. No, you don't. You know, Pastor, you, you counseled them for marriage counseling. Why don't you counsel everyone? Because I have a life. Well, when I call you, why do I have to go to Pastor Brett or why do I have to go to Pastor Tony? Because they have a life too. And I have a life. And we balance it and we share. We carry it. Well, if you're going to do it for one, you have to do it for every... No, I don't. No, no, I don't. Neither do you. Isn't that freeing? Say it. No, I don't. Just say it. I don't have to. No, don't. Yeah. Oh, that felt good. <laughs> Remember this. If you've been conditioned with that response that if I have to do it for one, I have to do it for everyone, this is what you end up doing. What we can't do for everyone, we end up not doing for anyone. Yeah, why bother? I can't fix it, so might as well not even try. Stop it. That's unacceptable. This is what you do, and this is how we close. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. You see... Jesus went to the cross not knowing who would respond. For God so loved the world, He gave. And most of the people that day, especially the two thieves on His either side, mocked Him. Both of them mocked Him. His disciples scattered like wind to a seed. He didn't have a friend in the world. He was a penny looking for change. 
And Jesus did it for you. If you were the only one to be saved on this earth. He did it for me. He did for one what he wished he could have done for everyone. And his action was enough to do it for everyone, but not everyone responded. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Think about that. Think about what a difference we'd make. What's your ministry? How are you working out your salvation? Or I should say, how is your salvation working out? Who's being touched by your life? Who are you discipling? Who are you sacrificially giving to? Who's the biggest challenge in your life? What are the ministries you give your life to? Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Salvation works. Salvation works. Faith without works is dead. Proof. If Jesus had faith in the Father's plan but didn't work it out, you and I would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And there's a world out there dying, waiting for you to live and to give and to serve and go the distance. That's the fruit. You don't work to be saved. You work because you are saved. And you operate in those good works that God created beforehand that you would walk in them. And God is going to test you on this. What do you hold dear? What's your Isaac? What is it? What hinders you from going all in? What do you still hold on to that's yours? Put a knife through it. That's works. Let nothing come between you and God. Well, Pastor, I don't do children's ministry because I like to go to lunch with my family after the service. And the parents are late picking up the kids. Put a knife in it. Put a knife in it. Well, I, I just, I really, I'm busy and I need time to myself. Go ahead, let's put a knife in that. Oh, that's harsh. <laughs> Amen. God wants all of us, not a part. That's faith revealing itself through works. Put it on the altar and run a knife in it and live for the Lord. Because when we're dead, He lives. Amen? It's Communion Sunday. You see the picture. Jesus had faith in the Father's plan, but He worked it out. He went all the way to the cross and His body was broken the whole way. The body had to be broken so the blood could be poured out. That blood, the Bible says, blood must be shed for the remission of sins. His body was broken. His blood was poured out to the very last drop. When you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord. You realize what He's done for you. You're saved. You come to communion. You come to receive that which He worked out by faith. And when you receive it by faith, you go and work it out by faith. There's a world out there that needs to be served. And God wants to do that through you. We're going to take communion together. We're going to receive it by faith and go apply it by works. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and we thank you for communion Sunday as we gather as the body of Christ to receive from you this great gift.
the sacrament that has been that which has united the body of Christ for the ages. That's because you, Lord Jesus, by faith, worked it out all the way to the cross. You endured the beatings and the shame because you had us on your mind. He said, because of the joy that was set before me, I endured the cross. No man takes my life. I lay it down. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden with your selfish cares. Come by faith that I may manifest my life in yours through works. Come and receive this grace, this gift of God that your life would be used for His glory, would be revealed by the good works that He's prepared for you. Let this be a year of service that you would do for one that what you wish you could do for the many. God's ready to use you today. Let's evidence that faith by the works that He's ready to do in and through you for His glory. Let's take communion in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers will dismiss you by row. You come down, they'll hand you the cup. You grab the bread. We have gluten-free here. Go back to your seat through the center aisle. Sit down. And as we worship, just let the Lord minister to you. We don't do it corporately all at once. You just do it on your own. But remember the order. Bread first because the body had to be broken. Cup second. And just hold it and take it as you feel led to take it and worship the Lord. God bless you guys.